Welcome to Subculture. This is a podcast about the many unique, varied, and sometimes little-known groups that people find themselves relating to in our society. In today's world, everything runs on culture. Who you are, what you believe in, what you think about yourself, and the way we relate to the world is all defined by the choices we make and the people we choose to spend time with. How do we decide where we belong? Have you ever thought about changing who you are? Have you ever thought about joining a club, a group, a gang, or a clique? What makes us who we are? What makes us decide where to fit in? That's what this podcast will explore. Every week, I will interview an individual from a different subculture and try to get at the thing that makes them tick. I'd like to welcome everyone to another episode of Subculture. Today, I'm here with Aaron Edward Olson. Aaron, how are you, man? Welcome to the show. Hey, I'm doing all right. I'm just sitting in my six by eight prison cell. Yeah, you're in a you're in a subculture that uh, that a lot of people don't have any reference for, man. And uh, that's that you're in you're in prison. Yeah, I am. I'm in prison here in Shelton, Washington. Um, and as far as prison goes, it's probably one of the more laid back prisons, although it's, it's a bit unique. It's the only reception center in the state. Uh, and then I represent a small workforce that keeps the prison moving. And then they're just running guys through here on a, on a continual basis. They got them in jumpsuits. And so they're just kind of temporary. And I'm a, I'm a part of a small, uh, labor force of about 500 prisoners that keeps the prison afloat. Wow, man. So are you a state prisoner or a federal prisoner? Is that the distinction that I'm making correctly? Yeah, you make it correctly. Yeah, a lot of people confuse both jail and prison and then also the feds with state prison. I am a state prisoner. Um, I was convicted under Washington, Washington state law. I am a Washington state prisoner. And my understanding from uh, what I read about you online was that you're there, you have quite a hefty sentence. Am I right? Yeah. Um, I was arrested at, uh, when I was 19, um, for two crimes that I committed when I was 18. Um, and I was ultimately sentenced to life with the possibility of parole after 51 and a half years. Oh my goodness, man. That's a long time. That's a long time for something that, uh, you know, for a mistake you made when you were a young man. I'm sure you've given that a lot of thought. Do you want to tell us how, how you came to end up where you are? Sure, sure. Um, so I was given this length of time um, for two uh, what would be considered egregious or heinous crimes. Uh, no loss of life, but um, horrible nonetheless. Uh, I was convicted of um, sexual assault, kidnapping, robbery, and drug possession. Uh, for two crimes that I committed with a co-defendant when we were both 18 years old. And this happened in Tacoma, Washington. How old are you, Aaron? I'm 36 years old. Wow. Yeah. What was your life like prior to prison, man? You were, you were a pretty young man when all this started happening to you. So what was, what was your young life like? Where'd you grow up? Where are your parents? What, uh, what, what were you doing before all of this? 
Yeah. Um, so I've, I've spent about half my life incarcerated. This is the only time I've ever been incarcerated. Um, and um, like I said, I was 19 when I was ultimately arrested. These were two cold cases from when I was 18. I was ultimately caught a year later. Um, and my childhood leading up to that is it's really, um, I, I can pick out distinct moments, but it's really kind of a blur, um, all the way up to finally my incarceration, which really, I was still a child. I was technically an adult, you know, by law, but yeah. as I reflect and look back, I was so lost and, and really a, a child in, in many ways. I was an addict from the age of 12. Uh, so pretty, pretty hardcore drug user from the age of 12. I was bang affiliated from the age of 13. Where'd you grow up? Where were you living, Aaron? When, when were you in Washington? Yeah, I, I grew up uh, between the east side and hilltop uh, in Tacoma. Um, and this is in the late 80s, early 90s, and um, where we had a pretty significant gang problem. Uh, I grew up, the exact location was South 32nd and C., um, and the nearest uh, corner store was uh, called the Tacoma Dome Food Mart, and it had bars on the windows. It was common to see bars on everyone's windows. Right. And some of my earliest memories are, you know, I watched it get robbed at knife point when I was six or, you know, seeing my dad arrested uh, shortly before uh, my mom and uh, him divorced when I was three. Um, wow. And so it was common. It was common to, you know, hear gunshots. And uh, I remember... You know, one evening in the summer, we accidentally left our slip and slide out, out front. And it, of course, rather than steal it, someone just sliced it up. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> so it's kind of, uh, yeah, it, it's, um, um, it, you know, you, you learn early on what you could do and get away with, what was accepted, what was right. not accepted. Um, my mom was a single parent of four uh, after the divorce, and, and she had this... Uh, this old school Cutlass Sierra and they were known for having those plastic steering columns and, and our car, her car, her only car got stolen so many times. And so oh we goodness. would get it back, you know, with the trunk popped, you know, eventually and the steering column stripped. And um, it was just, it, it was really just an impoverished community, mainly poor and minority people just uh, consuming each other it is really the neighborhood that I grew up in. Yeah. Um, sounds like a, sounds like a pretty rough upbringing, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's worse, you know, I, when I talk about poverty or, or gang activity, I, I always reference kind of the first world, you know, I think we get, we get a, a dose of reality when we go to third world countries and see some of the impoverishment there. So as, as I grew older and especially through incarceration, you look back and you, you see missed opportunities or, or you realize, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you didn't have it so bad. Maybe you thought, you know, you had it real bad, but you just really missed a lot of opportunities. Um, and then so growing up, we started um, seeing a change in demographic uh, where it was a predominantly white and black community. And then we started getting a lot of refugees from Vietnam and Cambodia. Uh, and then a lot of Samoans and, and Hispanics moved in. And so by the time I was in grade school, uh, the demographics had shifted pretty quickly uh, in my neighborhood. What were you like as a student? Did you go to school? Were you a good student, bad student? Did you did you go? Uh, yeah, I, I went to school. Um, I didn't really start to have major problems until uh, drug addiction, and that was uh, brought on by an older group of peers. But up to about the age of 12, um, 
I was a pretty good student. Uh, I liked school. Uh, I liked writing. I remember writing once upon a time stories, you know, when I was in elementary school. And uh, But it was kind of two things happening at once because back in my neighborhood, um, uh, my brothers would bet with the other neighbor kids uh, against, you know, on me and then other kids my age, you know, I was always involved in some type of, you know, fighting ring or, or, you know, whatever kind of competition you know, to entertain, you know, the older, the older kids. And so that kind of transitioned to school as well. When um, I can remember some of my first fights, you know, in school at five years old and my first suspension by eight. And so kind of juggling this, this, uh, this inner confusion and anger, maybe not having a dad and, and then having these, uh, these patterns um, that were ingrained in my neighborhood begin to play out in school. And so by the time I was 12, the, the divide really, really started to happen pretty significantly. You said you got into drugs at 12. What were, uh, what you said you were a drug addict. What were you addicted to? What, you know, drug addicts, pretty broad term. Yeah. Um, well, I guess, I guess it really started when I was about nine with smoking cigarettes. And then, um, you know, people talk about gateways. I'm not sure so much if it was a gateway. I think the gateway in my life was really the peers that I was around, specifically older peers who introduced me when I was 12 to marijuana. Um, You know, these are things that are legalized in many states now, and a lot of people don't think much of it in recreational use. But as I reflect, a 12-year-old with a significantly underdeveloped brain at 12 shouldn't be using marijuana or using it multiple times a day. Uh, and so it, it was, it was powerful, you know, it was, you know, it wasn't, you know, the seventies weed, you know, this was, you know, this was late nineties, early two thousands, lots right. of hydroponics and very powerful, powerful THC. Yeah. yeah and then sure. that progressed to age 13 where uh, I was introduced to ecstasy, which had a lot of, uh, it wasn't uh, MDMA. It was a mixture of, you know, meth or, you know, a heroin compound, you know, whatever street drugs just kind of compiled together. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> did you, uh, did you struggle with drug addiction until you were incarcerated? Oh yeah. Yeah. Drugs were, drugs were probably the center uh, of my life up to my incarceration. Uh, as I mentioned before, I, I began to affiliate with gangs at the age of 13 and then my, I have a older, one of my older brothers, I have four sisters and two brothers, oh, wow. um, but it's kind of a hodgepodge situation where I only lived, it was only four of us in one household. I have three older sisters from my dad's previous marriage. So kind oh. of your American, uh, you know, your American family. So, <laughs> right. um, yeah. Yeah, so it was it was one of my older brothers who's five years older who introduced me to what we call in the street the game, um, and that was you know here's drugs, here's a gun. Um, of course, I didn't carry the gun to school, but I carried the drugs to school. And then anytime I sold drugs on the street, that's when I carried a gun. But going to school, it was yeah, I was in middle school selling drugs to other kids, um, and so it just continued. Um, and with that. Uh, naturally came crime. Did anybody ever try to like try to get you into rehab or do anything to help you get straightened out or sobered up? 
Yeah. yeah. Um, as I look back, there was opportunity. Um, the opportunity came more so in kind of people checking the boxes. I, I never had an intervention of like a father figure or someone who really cared like, Hey, let's, let's get you help. It was, yeah. uh, the, the, the intervention opportunities came through the form of public school. By the time I was 15, uh, I was expelled. Uh, and when I say expelled, it's much different than just a suspension expelled is you can't come back to this school, go to a different school and you can only come back here if you, you know, you know, complete X, Y, and Z. So I was 15 and, and I was going through my fourth expulsion. I had switched high schools, two for fighting, two for drugs. And they said, you can't come back to Tacoma public school um, or any school. Um, you, you can go to an alternative school if you pass a drug program. And so I went to an outpatient drug program. And I remember seeing a, a girl I grew up with. Her name was Tempest. And um, it, just a couple of years prior in middle school, we got like prettiest eyes together in our, you know, cheesy little yearbook. But um it, over the course of two years, she had been put on the track as a prostitute, and then she ended up with HIV, and she was in rehab uh, with me. So we're both, you know, 15 years old in rehab. She's a prostitute with HIV, and I had no idea what my future held. Um, but you know, I think maybe I was in just as as rough shape as her. I just didn't know it. So um, I went to that for a couple months, and I, I tried to. You know, the whole mindset of, oh, I can quit. You know, of course I can quit. It's not a problem. And, but, you know, okay, I'll quit. And, and then I realized pretty quick I couldn't quit. I was addicted. Um, and by then it was uh, not only weed, but methamphetamine, ecstasy. Um, and that progressed after I finally said, you know, well, the hell with school. Um, and I did that because I couldn't go back to school because I couldn't finish drug rehab. Um, and then, so I had progressed to cocaine, which, uh, began to be pretty popular in my neighborhoods. I guess anybody that's ever struggled with, a within any type of addiction, especially drug and alcohol addictions knows that it takes a power greater than yourself to outcome that, man. It's, it's something that, you know, just wishing for trying, uh, you know, trying to do, isn't going to make it go away, you know? No, no, especially being you know, not having tools, you know, not having tools, being young, you know, having a, a brain that is literally developing while saturated in substances, you know, in very bad substances. And, um, yeah, you're just uh, confused and you're dealing with hormones, uh, again, an underdeveloped brain and now drugs. It's, it, you know, you need a, a serious intervention you know probably what i needed was to be shipped you know somewhere into the country you know go to some some ranch or something you know you know get a get a get away and, and have a team surround me yeah and i mean you're probably right and you probably you probably did need that you know but unfortunately for it sounds like for yourself and for a lot of people that are in that situation you know this is very much a socioeconomic problem you know it's a problem that uh you know, it plagues people from all walks of life, but it, you know, the people with money are the people that have the opportunity to get help. You know, I was going to say, how many people do you think you're in prison with that have a similar story? You know, the same kind of thing, man. Well, yeah, I would say who doesn't, right? Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is kind of my story. I mean, you know, different offenses, of course, but uh, sure. yeah, um, yeah, there, there's a, there's a, 
there's also a high percentage of, um, of people with sex offenses. Um, that's very taboo in prison. And mine's a little unique in that I kind of span the board with other offenses as well. Most people in prison, it's, you know, usually just drug or property or if it's violence, it's, you know, murder or assault or, or some type of sex offense. Very rarely do you kind of see the, you know, the gauntlet, you know, such as mine, but the background is pretty similar with a lot of guys. Yeah. Addiction, fatherless, um, you know, inner city, uh, public school system. Uh, there's a lot of commonality for sure. Yeah. So fast forward, you're 19, 18, 19 years old, you catch these cases and you you find yourself in the, in the legal system, man. I mean, I'm sure everybody listening to this is going to want to know what happened. What happened? How did you end up in the legal system like this? As far as the crimes that I committed? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure everybody that's listening to this is thinking the same thing. Like we all want to know, what did you do? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I'll, I'll do my best to describe as best I can. I know I, I have to be careful on certain details, uh, at, not only out of respect to victims, but uh, there's because of legal ramifications. But, of course, I don't yeah, want you to so, just say or do know, anything that's going to cause you any troubles, of course, man. So um, yeah, to your I'll, ability, do my, I'll do my best. Yes, sir. Yeah, so... So I just kind of set some background. So first of all, I, I take full responsibility um, for my actions. Uh, I am guilty. Uh, I do not minimize uh, what I've done. I, I victimized two innocent women uh, when I was 18 years old uh, with a co-defendant who was also 18. Um, and so uh, one uh, incident um, involved, um, picking up a woman, uh, on the way to, to do drugs and sexually assaulting her. And then another incident involves, uh, my co-defendant and I, again, uh, this time, instead of doing drugs, we were going to commit a street robbery, which was a common practice, uh, with us and with the people that we, we ran with. Uh, we would often burglarize houses in the day and do street robberies at night. And so this, the second uh, incident was about 10 months later. Um, and this was a robbery uh, that ended up um, uh, progressing into a sexual assault. Um, again, uh, both these people were strangers uh, prior to, to the crimes we committed against them. Uh, we, we never knew them. We never saw them again until we were held accountable uh, in, in two different trials. Um, and so saying that, again, I just want to reiterate, I'm guilty. Uh, I take accountability for, for my actions. Yeah, I think um, that speaks, I mean, to you know, as, no, of course, nobody listening to this is going to condone any of those behaviors. You know, obviously, it's all terrible mm, stuff. No. But I, I would say I no. do condone you. I do say, you know, I, I respect you for uh, for uh, being man enough to take responsibility for it, you know, for sure. What's it like to find yourself facing 50 years in prison? You know, you're I guess you get arrested, you get, um, you know, a trial or, you know, the, you know, there's a what happens when you get arrested for something like that? How does something like that unfold? 
Yeah, um, uh, it's 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 surreal. Yeah. Um, again, these became cold cases uh, all throughout my childhood, and uh, I guess what little of my young adulthood that I had, there was never any ramifications from my actions. Um, you know, Tacoma is not the biggest city, but it's a big enough city to where. Uh, you can run with enough people who all do the same things you do and you get away with it. You know, you, there, there's like a loyalty pack and it's really uh, based in cowardice. It, it, I'm still a very loyal person, but not in a cowardly way these days. Uh, I stand for a cause and that cause is to make a difference in people's lives. But um, going back, um, finally getting caught for it was surreal. I never thought I would get caught for it. Um, but over the course of that, of the year that it was a cold case, um, I, I began to, uh, really despise myself. And I think it, it's what little, what little bit of conscience I had left and hadn't feared up to that point was really screaming, you know, within me. And I, I didn't like myself. I didn't like who I had become. Um, uh, I knew, I knew that's not who I was supposed to be. And so when I was arrested, it was both a shock and surreal um, and like forced sobriety. So that was kind of, I was going through withdrawals, but it was really a relief in some sense too. You know, I didn't have to, I didn't have to fake what I had done. I didn't have to fake who I had become. I, I, I didn't have to run from it anymore. So it was, it was a lot of things at once, you know, it was, uh, you know, you're entering a jail that's filthy it's dirty. Um, you know, people are coming down again. I'm 19 and I'm in there with, you know, career criminals and, um, predators. Was that scary, you know, for, you, who, that scary uh, for you to be in jail with guys like a lot older than you? I was terrified, you know, um, but I had learned from the streets, you know, don't ever let anybody see a sweat. So I was terrified inside, but nobody knew it. You know, I didn't show it on my face. But I didn't. I didn't look like a tough guy, <laughs> so 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 I was I was a menace to society. I needed to be removed from society. But when you look at pictures of 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 me when I was incarcerated, you know I was five foot ten, one hundred and sixty pounds. You know, not a bit of hair on my face. You know, scraggly red hair. I literally looked like I looked like a good kid. I looked like you know the boy next door. Um, but I was I was. Uh, yeah, I was a menace. I, I was lost and I'm not, I wasn't someone that you wanted to run into um, because I was hurting inside and, and I inflicted that hurt on others. So yeah, getting locked up, it was, it was really a mix of emotions, Chris. Yeah. I mean, uh, your description of everything, man, is, I mean, it, I, I can feel it, man, from you while you're talking, you know, um, yeah, it's very powerful stuff, man. So you get, you get, did you get, go to a trial or did you get sent you know how does that happen did you plead guilty and just take the yeah yeah so so everyone's kind of in a different boat right if if it's more egregious or more violent or there's some type of cold case situation involved you're going to spend more time in jail at pierce county jail they split the jail into two different sections they had what was called an old jail those were guys who were you know, maybe on appeal from prison or they were looking at very serious cases. And then there was what was called the new jail. It was a newer building. And those were less egregious cases, typically misdemeanors or gross misdemeanors or low level felonies. So I was in the old jail. So I was surrounded exclusively by 
people with, you know, murder, first degree assault, uh, repeat offenders, you know, people in on sex, uh, um, sex allegations of, of some form or another, whether it was, um, uh, you know, molestation or rape or, you know, there's the whole variety of that. And so everything that's deemed violent. Um, and then people there that were being investigated by the Green River Task Force. And um, so you're going to sit there for a while. And typically sitting in jail for a long time is about nine to 12 months. I sat there for four years. Oh I did goodness. four years in a county jail without ever seeing the sun, without ever seeing a blade of grass, without ever seeing a car, a tree, nothing. It was just concrete for four years. And, um, do you have a lawyer? It, uh, uh, yeah, I had a lawyer. Yeah. They, we got, we got all kinds of names for lawyers here. <laughs> so yeah, you got lawyers. Um, and it just get, getting back to your socioeconomic background is kind of depends on whether you have a good lawyer or not. Um, yeah, right. my, my family, I pulled my drug money that I had left out there together with a friend's mom, who was the only really semi-wealthy person we knew. And we dropped about 50 grand on a lawyer who I learned later had was only really good for misdemeanors and gross misdemeanors. So I was a high-level felony case, and she was way out of her league. Um, and, and, you know, fast forward two years to the first trial, she got up uh, at closing arguments uh, several weeks into my trial. It's the very end. And she looked at me and she said, I'm not very good at closing arguments. And then gave the closing arguments. Oh, um, no. And so that's <laughs> kind of, yeah. that, that's the case with a lot of people. You know, they have public defenders or they have lawyers who, you know, kind of, you know, sell them up river, um, which is an old plantation term used. And, <laughs> and you yeah. feel like that, you, I, you know, whether yeah. you're guilty or not, and I, I was guilty you feel like that. You feel like you're just kind of a pawn in this game. And, you know, people nickname lawyers trucks, you know, they say, oh, they're, that's a truck, you know, but that's not a good term. You don't want to be called a truck. Um, okay. And so you're just seeing that it's just, it, it's just the gauntlet, you know, going in a circle and it's called the justice system and you get in there and it's just, you know, but they, they do the song and dance and just, they got people piled up, you know, in jail. And when you go into your court hearing, they're piled up and you, you go in for a continuance. You're not going in for anything to happen. It's just you're just going for what's called a continuance. And then they just keep delaying, delaying, kicking the can down the road. And um, and so, so Chris, I struggled. I, I struggled with, with knowing I was guilty, but also knowing they wanted to give me a life sentence and yeah. feeling like, well, yeah, I'm guilty. I should be removed from, from society. But this, I felt this rebellion begin to well up in me as right. I was starting to mature and kind of come out of that drug stupor. I was, I was really, I acted up a lot in court and I regret that, but looking back at it, I was still really young, lost. And, and, and I thought, well, no, I don't want you to take my life away. Yeah. And so I did that whole sovereignty movement in there and, you know, I disrespected the judge and I would never call him your honor. And uh, I was, I was really a reflection of, of who I once was kind of mixed with, something happening inside of me something was something good was happening and it didn't really finally take root until my second trial and that's when i was able to you know abandon the lie you know my first case i lied i got up on the stand i lied and and just denied and then my second case i finally had 
reached a point in real life. And you know what? I'm going to do a lot of time no matter what. And so I got up on the stand and I told the truth in my, in my second trial. And that was, as I look back now, it's really the process of, of, of slow, slow growth happening, you know, in a, in a place that is designed for hopelessness, you know, four years without seeing any nature or anything. I mean, I felt like I was losing my mind. Yeah. It'll break your mental spirit down. I'm sure, man. And just make you feel probably like, uh, you know, anything is better than your current situation, you know? Yeah. So you go have two trials and you're sentenced to this long time in prison. You go off to prison. What's life like in prison? Um, and well, and that, so that all depends on what prison you go to. So, so my, well, you're sent first here to Shelton at the, at the reception center, but you're only here for a short time, uh, unless you become population here. So there's, it's kind of split into two here. There's what's called the reception center and then there's population. So, so everyone coming through is going through reception. So I went through reception and, uh, and then I was sent to my parent institution so you get a parent institution, which means if anything happens or, you know, DO, the Department of Corrections decides to reclassify people or if you get into trouble somewhere, you're always sent back or deferred back to your parent institution. Right. Well, my co-defendant went to one of two close custodies, which is the most, uh, which is the um, it's it's the most stringent custody level aside from solitary confinement, which I've done plenty of time in there too. So he went to Kuala Bay, which is up north northwest in Washington. It's where they film those movies in Forks uh, Twilight. So it's a okay. prison up up in that area. Okay. Um, and then I was sent to the other close custody, which is Walla Walla, known for its onions. Um, and prison, <laughs> so, okay. onions in prison. That's all that's in Walla Walla. So you, you, you know, unless you're going for Walla Walla sweets, you don't want to be there. Uh, Fair enough. <laughs> and uh, so, so, so they got books and movies. You know, after this prison, uh, Blood Alley and Concrete Mama, um, and it, it's uh, it, it's a horrible place. And I went to a newer part of the prison called the West Complex, and it's four massive buildings holding the most violent prisoners in Washington and probably some of the most violent on the West coast. Um, and these are all guys who, um, most of them you'll never see in society again. And most of them you'll never see in any other prison aside from the prison that they're in. Uh, you know, they got six, six, six tattooed across their face or MS 13, you know, they're big and in, big into face tattoos. <laughs> so, <Right>. so <laughs> my experience has been, uh, you know, people with, you know, I'm not, I don't want to discriminate, but typically when you get tattoos all over your face, it's not a good sign. <laughs> so let me ask so, you a um, question, Aaron, is it, you know, everybody's seen the prison movies, man. And we all, you know, are kind of imagining the scene that you're, you're describing and it's gotta be terrifying. What's the misconceptions about, you know, that would, that people would have about a place like that? Like, well, well give me a movie. And I'll tell you. <laughs> I don't really want to say a movie specifically, but I'm more like, you know, what do you think people's okay. misconceptions are about, about prison? You know, like what's the reality versus, you know, like what pot, what people may think. Um, hmm. 
I think I think if you've watched any of the lockup series, you, you've pretty much gotten the gist of of what lockup is like, both jail and, and prison, um, yep. to different degrees, both you know minimum to maximum. But I think the misconception is um, it's not it's not the it's not the prisoners you have to worry about. It's not the prisoners running the show. Um, you're, it looks like it, uh, it looks like controlled chaos. And yes, you have to fit in within that system. And yes, you can lose your life from another prisoner. Um, sure. but if you follow the warning signs, usually you'll be okay. Um, you just come out with a little bit of PTSD, best case scenario. <laughs> so sure. I, I think the misconception is that the system is operating just how it's designed to operate. And that's the sad part. We have such a high recidivism rate in this country because it's designed like that. It's yeah. designed like that. If they wanted a different outcome, the people in power, starting with administration all the way up to legislation, um, they would have a different design. But there is a false narrative in the public that, this is where we send bad people and it needs to be hardcore. You got to punish them. Well, you know, 95% of all of these prisoners are releasing back into the community. So if you beat a dog for a long time, what are you going to get? That, that dog's not going to be fit to be around anybody. And so what we have in America is a system that is, that's horrible. It's horrible. And, um, and it's it's not based in humanity or rehabilitation, and uh, it's not it's not producing model citizens. It's producing monsters, and you have to really you got to really fight against. You know, you're only going to succeed in spite of the design. It's a miracle that anybody goes through this system and uh, and comes out as a good person. You sound really passionate about that, and I and what I know and what I know from your online presence that I've um, that I've seen is that you're a that you're a big advocate for like prison reform. You know, from what I've seen of your online presence, which you have some. Um, do, you, do you? Am I wrong in saying that you have a podcast that you that you do? I do. Uh, it, it's in its beginning stages. We've had it for about a year, but you know, we we've just been playing around with some things. Uh, and this is on a Patreon platform. Uh, a lot of people are familiar with Patreon. It's just this, it's a, uh, all my stuff's free, you know, to see, but it's a, yeah. a subscription based site for, for people who are artists or podcasters. So that, yeah. that's the only place it's been as of now, but we're hoping to expand to Spotify and, and we've obtained uh, a couple domains um, and working on a web designer. It, nice. it was formally, made in prison. And, uh, so after about a year, I thought, you know, I want something that really reflects who I am because my team, who was my fiance, Tracy, and then my administrator, Herman, who's in South Africa. Um, that's a, there's a story there, <laughs> but, but they, they support me, you know, uh, they, they love me and they just, they support, um, you know, my vision and, and want to give me a voice into this world. So, um, so I, I rebranded to the Abolition Christian, which really 
um, captures who I am. I really attribute my success in life, which has been, happens to be in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, I attribute that to God. God salvaged my life. Uh, I could have died on the streets of Tacoma and I could have succumbed to, uh, the, uh, the chaos in prison, but, um, I, I without getting too Bible thumpy, uh, God is so good and he, he saved me and transformed me. Um, and so I am the abolition Christian. I, I believe in prison abolition, not letting prisoners out, but in complete massive reform of the system, which is wrought with corruption. Uh, I don't I've think there's any. Like, yeah, I don't think there's any reasonable thinking person in the United States that would look at the current state of our prison system and think that what's going on there is is good for anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I agree. Um, like and mess. so that's what, that's what I talk about. Formerly made it made in prison. We did, we just talked about all things prison, prison related. Um, and I have, um, my name captured and it's linked to the Patreon site. So anybody can search my name. It's, it's yeah. Aaron Edward Olson.com. Uh, and that'll always take you to my podcast. And then on social media, I'm the abolition Christian at Aaron Olson, 1986. And that's what I do. I just talk about who I am. Uh, Of course, that's rooted in my faith. Uh, My mission is my life and my life happens to be in prison. And this is my society. I don't know if I'll ever uh, walk free again. I hope so. But uh, this is, this is my community and uh, I see it run in a horrible way. I see a total uh, misappropriation of taxpayer funds, a total waste. It is horrible. Um, and so I'm surrounded with people, many of which, including myself, needed to be separated from society. Um, but I am a huge advocate on humanity. Uh, I think this needs to be a citizen's university. Uh, instead, it's the school of criminality. It is a horrible system and it does not produce model citizens. What's it like? What's a day-to-day, what's a day-to-day life in prison like, Aaron? Like just talk, you know, talk us through like a day, like a, a routine day in your, in your current state of imprisonment today. So, so yeah, so I, I'm, uh, I actually have a piece on online too <laughs> called American Gulag. It walks you through a day, a day in my life, but um, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's, there, there. You have the longer you've been in in prison, as long as you've, um, if, as long as you haven't pissed off the man uh, too much. Which uh, I'm, I'm riding that razor's edge with my voice in the community. They don't like that at all because it, it uh, challenges the narrative. But I follow all the prison rules. Um, so as long as you haven't pissed off the man too much and he hasn't crushed you. Uh, the longer you've been in prison, you're able to kind of work your way to hopefully to the institution you want, which I am at the institution where, um, uh, like I said, I'm a part, I'm a part of a small workforce that operates this prison. So we have maybe a little extra give or, or liberty that the average person in another prison wouldn't. Um, so, so I work in a warehouse. And in 17 years of incarceration, it is the best gig you can imagine. And so I'm a workforce development administrative assistant. 
I help prisoners release and I work with them directly, uh, helping them build their resume, their release plan. I, I coach them uh, face-to-face and, and help them prepare for job interviews. I only know how to do a job interview because, <laughs> because I did a job hunters course here uh, a few years back and they brought in all these companies from the out, including Home Depot and Comcast. And the people from Comcast wanted to hire me. They said, well, when do you get out? And I said, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to disappoint you. At that point, I still had 35 years over my head. And both the lady and guy, probably from some, you know, their HR department, they, they, they started just crying immediately, you know, sobbing. And uh, I, mean, I think it was a good experience for them, you know, realizing, hey, there's some, there's some great, this is like an untapped, uh, you know, uh, uh, resource. But, and, and so, you know, I represent a small group of guys in prison that has chosen to rehabilitate in spite of the design. And many of us have worked ourselves into the kind of the, um, uh, what do you say? It's really like the promised land in prison. You know, I work at a place nicknamed Pick-A-Pack, and it's a distribution warehouse, and it is the only place in the entire prison system, any uh, out of all 18 prisons here in the state, where you're just kind of left alone. Uh, you know, yeah. most everywhere you go, you're being harped on, you know, you're being strip searched, you know, to and from places, patted down, felt up, groped, uh, having all of your stuff on through, constantly berated. They're looking for anything, and it's just like, just man, get off my back, dude. I just want to, li- you know, like I'm doing this for a long time. Just please leave me alone, right? Um, and so, yeah, I, my my average day is I wake up. I'm thankful to be, if I am going to be in prison, I'm thankful to be where I'm at. You know, everyone around me is pretty much focused on work. So I get up. I, I uh, you know, get ready. I have instant coffee. So it's not percolated, but it's instant. And wash my face. And, you know, I got my small little six bites. This is my home with a, with a, with a roommate. My roommate's actually in my room right now. He's being very, very, very polite. Our room. Sorry, I was just corrected. Um, and so, uh, you know, this is my small domain and I exit this domain about six thirty in the morning and go down to uh, the bathroom and wash up and get my instant coffee filled up and, uh, make a phone call when they turn on the phone at seven o'clock. I call my fiance or my administrator in South Africa. Um, and then I, I, I go to work for, uh, I have a short day. It's only a seven hour work day, but other places you can work 10, 12, 14 hours if you're you know, in food service. Um, and I'm, I'm left alone for the most part. I'm thankful it hasn't always been like that. And then I, I come home uh, uh, after work. And I work on writing projects. Uh, I work closely with different editors over the phone and and over the uh, limited email service that were that were that we've been given here this last decade. We were given um, a little bit of technology. Is that a thing in prison now, where where prisoners have like a like an iPad or it's some type of like electronic tablet that you can communicate with people through a tablet? Yeah. So in 2011, they launched what was called the JP3, and I guess that's the closest thing to it was like maybe an MP3 player, and it right. just had some music on there that just you could purchase. I mean, you know, and they're charging you two bucks or two dollars and sixteen cents per song. It's there's nothing free in prison, you know. The calls at that time were 
I think they were $3.72 for, for 20 minutes. Now, be mindful that most people, if they pay anything at all, you, you uh, get a wage of about $0.27 cents an hour working for the Department of Corrections. I, I work for Correctional Industries, which I get the highest pay allotted for anybody in the state. Uh, state prison system. I get a dollar seventy. I get to. I get seventy percent of that because I paid off my LFOs, my legal financial obligations. I paid uh, twenty three thousand dollars. I paid all my legal financial obligations off on a virtually a slave wage uh, over the course of seventeen years. Um, so a so a twenty minute phone call out of your take home money will will cost you about three to four hours of work. Uh, a tube of toothpaste is a full day's work. Um, and so, and, and, you know, I have a cush job. I've worked my way over the years into a pretty cush job. It's probably the best gig in prison, but, but you don't, you start out, you know, scrubbing toilets or, you know, you're out in the field. Um, I, I, I make jokes sometimes and say, I'm headed to the, the rock quarry, you know, or the salt mine. That's not <laughs> true, but you know, I kind of right. joke sometimes <laughs> so, uh, almost. <laughs> Almost sometimes, but breaking hot rocks yeah. in the sun all day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, down the chain gang, right? Yeah, not not here. No, we don't have a chain gang in this state. I know down south they still have pretty harsh conditions, but uh, yeah, you might be in the field all day here. You know, they sure. they uh, they have massive gardens here, and and then they donate all that food to like the food bank. And man, I tell you what, my 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 appetite quen- is quenched when I see those onions and those bell peppers out there. I sure want one. But no, they donate all of that to the food bank. How do you? Uh, how did you? How did you? Now you said you have a fiance that's uh, that's helping you with these calls. How does that? How does that? How did you come by having a fiance? Yeah. So, so a little bit of background story. I was also married for six years before that <laughs> in prison. Okay. Um, so, so as you can see from my online presence, again, I don't have online capability. This is all uh, run via my network, but it's me communicating directly to them through the um, limited and observed email service I have or these type of phone calls. Um, And so uh, after about 10 years of incarceration, it was about 2016 that I thought, you know, I'm pretty lonely Um, and I don't, you know, I might still have decades to do. I don't know. Let me, let me let me see if I'll, I'll just put myself out there. Guys, we're talking about these pen pal websites, which is which has exploded in recent years. You have a lot of prison pen pal sites, right? I'm sure if you just search pen pal, you'll come up with all kinds. Um, so, so I got on the hottest one, and I was a little worried because of my criminal history. It's pretty taboo. Um, you know, would I ever be accepted? I still had some, you know, self esteem issues, of course. Sure. And um, uh, I was on. I was on for a year. I think I had first gotten on in 2015 and then I was on for a year and then I renewed. I thought, oh, what the heck? I renewed. And then it was two weeks after my renewal in 2016 um, that a woman reached out to me from the Midwest, uh, former uh, army officer, uh, nurse. Um, Today, she's a psych nurse practitioner. She writes children's books. We ended up starting a relationship, getting married. She moved out here from the Midwest and uh, uh, our marriage you know, lasted and did great until COVID happened. And then they shut everything down and we didn't get to uh, have contact for over two years. And during those two years, she had 
fertility issues. She lost her dad, who she just met, to cancer. Then she got cancer, and it, it, it was it was a lot. And finally, she she parted ways and just said, "I need a present partner." And um, with as much heartbreak as there, I, you know, I respect her and I wish her well. And and so fast forward about uh, a year and a half is when I decided, well, maybe I'll get back on the horse. And um, and so I got out on some pen pal websites again. And uh, it wasn't through a pen pal website. It was actually through a lady, an older lady I met when I was at Walla Walla. Um, I was given a message at the resurrection service. This was three days after I lost my mom. This was, uh, this was about uh, 10 years ago. I lost my mom to suicide in 2013. And uh, she struggled with you know, mental health issues uh, for a long time. And, and so about three days after I, I lost her, um, uh, I, I was still scheduled to preach. And I, I went forward, I did it. And uh, this older lady came up to me and, and I had shared about my mom. And it was really a message on, on reaching out and, and giving hope to people because you never really know what kind of situation they're in. And it was really fresh and timely dealing with what happened with my mom, who was my best friend, my, you know, she raised me. And, uh, and so she came up to me, this, this older lady named Patty, and she said, I'll be your mom. And, uh, she kept in touch with me and she ended up here, uh, um, about six months ago, reaching out to me and connecting me with a, with a, with a lady that, that she had known for years. Um, and her name's Tracy. And so me and Tracy started talking and, um, and then, you know, a few months went by and we went to the next level and, and then a few months went by and we took it to the next level and I'm engaged. Well, thanks. Uh, well, congratulations to you, you on your engagement and thanks so much to Tracy if uh, she's listening on the other line, cause I know she's helping you, uh, get plugged in on the phone call for this podcast. So I appreciate, uh, both Tracy yeah. and, your, and your roommate there for, uh, for helping you um, be a guest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Tracy's an amazing woman. And uh, yeah, uh, Chris, I, um, I've been shocked, you know, the more I've extended myself into the public sphere, yeah. um, I've gotten almost nothing but positive feedback back. I mean, there's been a few haters, of course, you know, and, and, and sure. I even understand you know, their position, you know, you're a terrible person. You deserve to be, you know, you know, I get it. I'm not going to dispute whatever you're saying. I'll just wish you well. And, um, I, you know, I, I disagree with that position as far as who I am today, but I understand your sentiment. Um, but I've just gotten so much positive feedback, Chris, and it's really a testament to so many amazing people in our society. Uh, not only our country, but, you know, like I mentioned before, I have an administrator in South Africa. What does that even mean? What is an administrator? I don't know what that means. You've, you've mentioned that a couple of times. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Yeah. I I think I've just, uh, I think I've just, well, I, I've given a handle, so I'm in prison. I don't have a handle in prison. You know, everyone is, you know, you know, big dog or, you know, sleepy or, you know, some, some other, (laughs) some crazy handle. Right. Well, I don't have a handle. I'm just Aaron. I I, I never had a handle. And uh, Herman, uh, I've given him a handle. He is uh, AKA Herm dog. (laughs) So, and and I'm not much of a cusser, but he is. So I'm the Christian 
prisoner without a handle, and he is an atheist, uh, a free person uh, with a handle. So <laughs> anyway, so yeah, he was he was one of many people who reached out to me uh, a few years back, um, you know, because of my presence uh, in the community and online. And, um, and so administrator, um, you know, I don't know. I just know he, he, he helps me out a lot. So I just call him my administrator. <laughs> he's like, he's kind of my, you know, he, he's, he's been my rock, you know, he's been my sidekick. He's been an amazing friend. So you got a, so you got a fiance and you got a guy in South Africa, you're, you're, uh, who helps you, uh, launch all your stuff, your writings and your podcast and all of that. We were kind of curious man, when you hopped off, like, how do you get these photos of you and stuff in prison? How does it work? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah, different ways. Um, so nothing illicit, you know, nothing, nothing illegal. I've never had a cell phone in prison. Um, so, so we're on Securus right now, which is the, um, juggernaut, prison profit. Well, let me, let me, uh, talk good about them. Uh, Securus is the current, um, operator of our video visits, uh, email, anything basically media related. Okay. Um, but it used to be JPay, which it's, I think they're still underneath Securus. And I think Securus even has a parent company. This is like a corporation that handles the communication arm of prisons, I guess. Right. Yeah, yeah, you're gonna tap my uh, my passion again. Yeah, they're they're one of 4,100 companies or corporations profiting off of prisons in America, um, and they're wow. a big one. Wow. So, so it, it was JPay handling all of that, and they had individual two terminals in our unit that you could take uh, pictures, snapshots oh. with, and I would utilize that. Sometimes they come out really grainy. Sometimes they come out clear. I just, I don't know what the difference is or, or why some are good and some aren't. And then we also have pictures that we can get occasionally if, if everything's op- operational in visitation. And then also at the gym, you, you can buy photo coupons off of the commissary for a dollar, um, typically two at a time. And then once a month, um, again, if things go smooth, if there's not a cancellation, you can get two photos using a digital camera in the gym. And that's how I've been able to get pictures with, you know, the dogs that I train, um, or, um, you're not, you're not supposed to have group photos, but I've, uh, I guess if, if there's any rule breaking, it's definitely been a few opportunities. I've been able to s- slide a couple of guys into a photo. <laughs> I got you. So it's hard not to, you know, you want yeah. to take pictures with your friends. Yeah, sure, man. So, and I'm sure you got some friends if you're 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 in a place that long uh, with the, with a bunch of the same guys all the time. I guess you you make friends there. You have a group of friends that you have in prison. Yeah, I do, and and I really just want to give a shout out to two very close friends of mine, um, uh, Antoine Davis, who was there for me when I lost my mom to suicide at Walla Walla. He's now housed with me here uh, on the on the complete opposite side of the state. Um, at Shelton, and uh, he is my absolute best friend, uh, my Christian brother. Um, we, he's black, I'm white, and we do not allow race politics at Walla Walla to affect our friendship. But it is, it is extremely segregated there. We just wrote a piece actually for Plow Magazine uh, about that experience. 
Um, anyways, an amazing, amazing friend of mine. And then I also want to uh, mention a very close friend of mine, Christopher Blackwell. And he's on Twitter and he has about, you know, he has about, I'm kind of in his shadow in, in some ways. Uh, he has about 25,000 followers on Twitter, not too shabby for a prisoner. But, but Chris, Chris took all of my writing experience and opened up doors for me. Uh, I'm doing now what Chris did three years ago. Uh, he's now writing often for the New York Times and different publications, being interviewed by NPR, et cetera. Um, Chris uh, opened up the door for me with an organization called Empowerment Avenue, who I write for. And they paired me with amazing editors, uh, Debbie Zelesny and uh, Beth Seidel, Emily Nonko, just some uh, Mari Cohen. We just wrote a piece on solitary for Jewish currents. Uh, just some amazing people. Um, and so, right here from a six by eight prison cell in Washington state serving a life sentence. Uh, I feel like I can reach anybody around the world with my message. And my message is just that while there's breath in your body, there's hope for your life. You know, you, you know, you have value and you don't have to go down the same road. I did. If you're a, if you're a youth and if you're older and struggling with, with, uh, with depression, with defeat, uh, there's going to be brighter days and people care more people care than, you know, and I get to share that message and also the, my hope and my desire to see transformation in the prison system and with the prison system, I get to share that message in these publications that gives me a voice. And I'm so thankful. So grateful. Aaron, you're, you're a very inspirational guy to listen to, man, even in, uh, you know, the tough situation that you're in, man, your, your positivity and your, uh, you know, your spirit really do shine through all of that, man. And uh, it, it says something a lot about the human spirit and yours in particular. I have a friend of mine who, uh, you know, who I, who I was, I'm 51 years old and me and this guy were, uh, were, you know, around each other a lot when we were teenagers and in our 20s. And, uh, you know, we haven't had a lot of contact over the years, but, you know, we've kept in touch somewhat. He's, uh, he's my age, he's 51 years old. And um, recently, about a year ago, he found himself going to prison for, um, you know, for a very long time, I think about 15 years sentence for a cold case that was, uh, you know, that was over 20 years old. And uh, what would you say to somebody like who's, who's finding themselves in that situation? Uh, you know, how is there any kind of like words of wisdom or experience or hope uh, that you would share with somebody that's finding themselves in that situation? This is for my friend Courtney, who's in prison. To people like Courtney um, and to Courtney personally, um, I, I would say immediately uh, your life is not over. Um, and I would give some immediate words of wisdom. Again, my time is short, probably giving this advice to anybody, but stay healthy, get a workout routine immediately. Cause if you're 50 or 50 plus and you have a 15 year sentence, I don't know what kind of good time or parole you have there. Again, we don't have a, a, a legitimate parole system here. You're basically doing your time. Um, so get healthy, stay healthy. Uh, be very picky about what you eat. Uh, that's served on mainline. That is, you know, the, where you get food in the chow hall it's called mainline. Uh, be very picky about what you eat there. There's stuff packed with preservatives. Be, be uh, super focused on your health. Um, if you're in bad shape, 
then, you know, do your best to start stretching and exercising. Um, sit in, but uh, don't compromise. Uh, you don't want to look like a target, uh, especially being, you know, prison is a young man's domain and especially uh, young troubled men, and they are not receiving the help that they should. And you are target number one. If you are older or middle-aged uh, or any type of out of shape, or if you've had any connection with law enforcement in the past or an opposing gang or, or uh, an unsavory crime, uh, you are target number one. Just being middle-aged or older, number one, puts you as a target. So uh, wear a tough face, but don't stare people in the eye. Look right through them. Just have the thousand-yard stare and be going from point A to point B all the time. Stay busy. Program. Uh, don't linger anywhere. Um, don't look like you're uh, lost. <laughs> um, you know, get into church. Uh, or AA or whatever your thing is, unbiased, of course, church, that's, that's where everything changed for me. But program, get a job, uh, work out, and then get a buddy system. Don't run with a group or a pack. Just find one or two decent guys that you think you can connect with. And that's going to be the tricky part. It's going to be the first 24, 48 hours where people are going to get a beat on you. And either you make some mistakes in that, in those moments that you can never undo or you kind of pass the test and just kind of go with the flow and, uh, and just pave your own path. So eventually after you get some time under your belt, you can begin to kick against the grain a little bit more. You know, people are doing this and they want you to do something. Now I'm not with that. And maybe being an older guy, you'll be referenced as an OG. Even if you're not a part of the gang, they'll call you OG or old school. They'll kind of give you a deferment. I heard from him that there's a lot of, I heard from him that there's a lot of like, like a lot of people in prison do drugs. Is that you've been your experience? Do you see that a lot? Yeah. Yeah. And, and more so recently, what, what, when I began my time, it was a gang issue. It was, you're, you gotta be a, a part of something. And I'm, uh, if there's any silver lining to my criminal convictions, specifically the taboo sex offense, if there's any silver lining to that at all, it's that um, I knew I couldn't join any type of gang because I would be found out. Um, so I just kind of did my own thing and started working out a lot. And that kind of kept the cowards at bay. Um, but as the years went on, it went from a, uh, lots of violence and gangs to now prisons are, are just, um, decimated by, by drugs. There's still a gang problem in some of the more violent and higher security prisons, uh, but it's just drugs everywhere. And I'm even seeing fentanyl in, in our prisons. And, you know, they get it in any way they can, with staff or, I mean, just any, you know, you'd be surprised. So, yeah, drugs is huge, huge. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't want to go there and uh, don't get into debt, don't do drugs. Don't gamble. <laughs> don't get prison tattoos. <laughs> uh, don't join a gang. Okay, so he won't have to worry about that. He's older, but you know the drugs. Yeah. I don't know the situation or what what his history. I think is he's like. going on his. I think he's going on about a year. I think he's going on about a year and a half to two years now, man. And you know, I think he just struggles with uh, yeah. just the depression of the situation. You know, like, kind of hopeless. Yeah. And, you know, so like, for someone like. 
so for someone like him, not in that first 48 hour window, so one to two years, then my advice kind of goes from that survival and, and and kind of maintaining to you can thrive in prison, utilize this opportunity to develop a plan for success, right? So when I got locked up, I had never read a book from cover to cover. I was almost, I was borderline illiterate, you know, drop out public school system, you know, uh, it was, it's sad to say I, my, my language was way different than the way I talk now. Um, certain words were accepted in my community that are no longer accepted out of my mouth here in prison because I'm white, but, um, it's, you know, segregated on racial lines, but I had never read a book from cover to cover. I was totally uneducated. And from then to now, you know, I have my degree, um, I read all the time. I've built a network. I've expanded out there uh, to have a voice that stretches around the world. And yeah, my podcast is small, still kind of in its pilot stages, but I sure have ambitions and, and I'm building what it takes to be successful, um, um, you know, through publishing my writing. And uh, I want to go from articles to books, of course, kind of a natural progression, at least I hope. Um, and so whatever his thing is, yeah, stay fresh, man, stay reading and depression is real. Stay away from that pill line as much as possible. Um, you know, I'm not exclusively against pharmaceuticals, but a lot of, uh, the department of corrections in different States, a lot of time, man, they'll put you on some heavy hitters and you're in that pill line. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a short amount of time from that pill line to your grave. And I watch it. I've watched it over and over and over. So stay healthy eat right, work out, stay away from the pill line. Aaron, you're a, you're a, you're a very inspirational guy to listen to, man. And I have uh, no doubt in my mind that if anybody can overcome incredible odds and, uh, you know, make something out of their life with what they have, it's you. Uh, I feel like uh, this is pretty much, we're pretty much out of time for this podcast. Um, before I let you off, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you want to say? Man, uh, well, I got my resume here, but that that would take another two calls. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna Bye. drop a link to you. I'm gonna drop I'm gonna drop a link to your socials and everything in the show notes below, and you can text yeah, me. you can text you. me a link That's that you like, and I'll make sure people can look you up and find out all about you from that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I guess my parting word. I appreciate that. Thank you. And my my parting words would would really just be. Um, man, you know, uh, one person can make a difference and I know it's a big world and it's crazy and there's political divides and racial divides and identity politics and a lot's going on. You know, there's kind of a global realignment happening. You know, I catch the news from prison and so I watch all this and I think, man, this is, this is, there's a lot going on in the world and inflation and, and, uh, you know, the, the, the drug epidemic out there, but I'm, I'm, I'm proof that redemption is possible for anyone and also you know you're only one person but you're also one person who can do so many things one person can make a difference you can make a difference in your community in your family begin with your household you know begin with yourself you know look in the mirror and and, and develop some positive affirmations and then take that positivity into your family, into your community, into your workplace. And, um, you know, speak up, you know, let your voice be heard, you know, empower people, fill people with life, life and death and the power of the tongue. And you can speak life into people. And, um, and you can bet just about anybody you come across, 
is struggling with something. And it probably has to do with anxiety and depression as far as the symptoms of being displayed from whatever they're struggling with. And a word from you can change their day, can change their life. You can make a difference, whoever you are, wherever you're at. And I encourage you to make a difference. Thank you so much, Aaron, for your time uh, and for your wise words uh, and for your incredibly powerful story, man. I really appreciate it. And uh, I will send you a link to the show when it comes out. And uh, we're all wishing you the very best. Please keep in touch with me and uh, let me know how your life's going for you, my friend. Yeah, I sure will. Thank you for this opportunity, man. It was a pleasure. Thank you. God bless you guys. I'd like to thank you all again for joining me on this episode of Subculture with Aaron Edward Olson, who's serving a life sentence in prison out in Washington. Aaron, thank you so much for being a guest. You can follow me here every week with a new episode of Subculture. If you want to find me on Twitter, it's at Harper underscore underscore Chris. And I'm going to drop a link to all Aaron's socials in the show notes below. If you like the show, please rate and review me. We'll catch you next week. Thank you all for listening.